Thank you for joining us on The Skeptic Psychic, where we delve into ancient societies, the ghosts, the paranormal, UFOs, all looking at it from the perspective of the true believer and from the skeptic perspective. Joining me, my partner, my co-host, my sibling, Kimber Rodriguez. Myself, I am Richard Gregg. And again, let's look into being the skeptic psychic. Hey, how you guys doing today? And welcome once again to the skeptic psychic, where we kind of have a nice little conversation about uh, myths, legends, uh, the the stuff that uh, creeps you in the night, or even beams you up to see Scotty. With me, as always, my sister, my friend, the sweetest thing that Mercy ever has, Kimber Rodriguez. Hey, how are you doing this week? I'm doing fine. How are you doing this week? I'm doing okay. Uh, trying to get myself in the habit of going to bed early and getting up early, so that way I can... You know, like the old saying goes, early to bed and early to rise makes a person healthy, wealthy, and wise. And, mm. well, I'm not a man, so I can't say makes a man healthy, wealthy, well, and wise. Well, man, it kind of uh, means mankind, so. Either way, um, trying to get into a better sleep schedule so that I can get more done during the day and be more productive, basically. Mm. I've just lived with the fact of being an insomniac. Uh, well, I've always been a night owl who hates getting up early. Um, Dad used to tell me that I could sleep my life away as much as I love to sleep. Says the man who uh, was, a, was a night owl. I got it from him, I guess. Yep. Mom was the early bird. Jim mm -hmm. Scott's the early bird. You're yes. the night owl. And where does that put me? <laughs> the insomniac. Yes. I I remember during the summer times when mom would leave for work and Scott would be up at 7 a.m., start blasting his stereo as loud as he could throughout the house and me be in bed pulling the blanket and pillows over my head, trying to drown out his music so I could sleep. Mm hmm. I'd be up. Uh, try. Uh watching the national anthem uh, going on. <laughs> yes. So what are we talking about this week? What is our topic? Are we talking ghosts, aliens, cryptids, mythological Actually, we're going to talk about uh, some myths and legends uh, dealing with sacred birds. Ah, now... What's the difference between a regular bird and a sacred bird? A sacred bird is is a some uh it is maybe a god uh a blessed creature that uh a god bestowed its uh its grace upon, you know. Uh might be a moralistic tale. It might be, uh, you know, the birds that uh, ancient uh, civilizations considered to be uh, messenger of the gods or even gods themselves. 
So you were saying a messenger of a god or a god itself? Yes. Usually, uh, sometimes these sacred birds are part of a story that uh, may teach a, a moral lesson. Interesting. So let's go ahead and get into the sacred birds. All right. So even for the most interested bird or, or bird watcher, there are some species that you love a little more than others. Perhaps that yellow rumped wobbler you finally spotted fitting flitting across the trees on, or the desert roadrunner who looks nothing like its ca cartoon counterpart. You can travel far and wide around the world to find the birds in every continent and every nation of our planet. With birds slowly found everywhere, it's no wonder why so many cultures focus on the myths surrounding the species and attribute godlike uh, aspects to the others. But what makes one bird perhaps a little more special than another? It does depend on who you are. As we all are aware, birds differ from climate to climate and can even nest in one area but ignore similar spots miles away. Some birds are migratory, spending part of the year up north then flying south for the winter. Others stay in the same areas no matter the season. You know, this is really interesting. Um... I live in South Texas, like right by Mexico, as mm -hmm. you know, but maybe our viewers don't. And I remember one year for my husband's birthday in September, or no, I take it back. It was actually in, I think, late November, de early December. And we went out to eat with my in-laws. And after we were done eating, we were standing outside chit-chatting. And there was all these birds everywhere, you know, on the building, on the, the, the phone wires. I mean, everywhere, birds just chirping in the trees. So Mercy looks up, looks around, and he, then he asks innocently, when are these birds going to go south for the winter? Mind you, we're in the south. So we all just laughed and chuckled and got a big kick out of that. I do note the fact that uh, during the, I believe I want to say the winter time, no, spring or something like that, you get an onslaught of parrots. Yes, being uh, next to Mexico, we do get a lot of parrots that fly over across the border to where we live. Or about five minutes from Mexico. Right. I mean, they only stay for maybe about two or three weeks uh, before they uh, go back uh, south. But yeah, that's kind of odd that parrots come up uh, for the winter and uh, leave and uh, go down in the spring. Yes, it's very interesting. But we get we digress. Yes. Sorry, ADHD tangent. So you know whether the rare of populace, birds have certainly gathered the attention of many cultures, um, and they have been defied by those who embrace them. For example, think of Egypt and their love of Thoth. This is the god of writing, wisdom, the moon, sacred text, mathematics, science, and magic. 
he was known as the messenger from the gods. So kind of like Cupid, but you know, mm. this is no, not Cupid. I'm sorry, Hermes. Thank you. Hermes. They both had wings just in different places. And Mercury. <laughs> yes. And Mercury. Um, That's so the same Thoth, name, by the way, for Hermes. Yes. But Thoth was the um, Egyptian version. And he recorded everything, all the history, you know, what the deities said or the tales and so on. For this reason, he was considered the master of knowledge and he was a patron of scribes. Europeans who study in the area, you know, and also in later years suspected that Thoth, who had the body of a man and the head of a bird, and he had a long bill, not, you know, like dollar bills, but, you know, his beak, <laughs> um, it curved downward. So they thought he could possibly be either a stork or a heron. This was well, again. He, they also say uh, that he could have been a abyss. I B I S. Yes. Again, this was um, because of the shape of his beak. However, it wasn't until the 19th century that a group of French scientists and naturalists um, they figured out that Thoth was actually the embodiment of the African sacred abyss, as you just said. Um, this was mostly due to Napoleon, and he claimed that he was defending the French trade interests with Egypt and Syria. Um, so earlier that it opened up this, this idea upon finding the Rosetta Stone, and that paved the way for future um people who study Egypt or Egyptologists, Egyptology, however you want to yeah. say it. Future episode. I would really love to discuss. I uh, It is kind of a science history, but the interest of the Rosetta Stone of, you know, how it was discovered and how they were able to decipher the uh, ancient script of uh, the Egyptians. Now, if we're going to get into the Rosetta Stone, we got to get into the Akashi records or however you say it, because uh, I know those are supposed to be like somehow connected, if that's correct. Well, the Akasha records. However you say it, that would be an interesting right. one to discuss. And I have some friends who study those records, so maybe we can bring on a special guest to talk about right. that sometime. Right. Now, like so many cultures that have lived and died over the history of the earth, the Egyptians' knowledge of these gods and why they came to be and were worshipped faded from memory as new religions boarded, namely Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Ancient Egyptians held hieroglyphics as something for royalty and scribes, not the common man, with conversations to new religions or the stories of ancient gods faded from everyday life and were mostly forgotten until scribes were gone and there was no one living who could read the old, old texts. But not all cultures turned their back on the way of life. Some died off as na naturally or were forced into oblivion through war. 
So many stories from living past forgot to the world. We have only scratched the surface of what have been lost to time. But in the National Institute of Health, claims anthropologists have recorded about 3,814 distinct and separate cultures that have come and gone, and that the number keeps climbing with new digs and discoveries. This is just a lot of history out there, many of which is just scraping the surface of. The history of how they lived and worshipped merely speculates until more evidence can be brought to life and worked out. Now, we're not going to have enough time to go through every single ancient civilization. Not actually 4,814 <laughs> civilizations. Maybe just maybe three or four, five at the tops, you know. Yes, but there is enough information to go around for, you know, the next hour or so, possibly do a second episode, in fact, because there's so much, so much information that our researcher found when it came to, to sacred birds and in these civilizations. But let's go ahead and start right here at home in the United States. The Thunderbird is surprisingly found in numerous indigenous cultures around the country. This is a fierce raptor, and it's held in oral traditions and histories and art, not only on the Pacific Northwest Coast, but also in our Southwest, the East Coast, the Great Lakes, and the Great Plains. Also, interestingly enough, it is a popular entity that in these modern times has gone on to the to join the pantheon of other noted cryptids like Nessie or even Bigfoot. So on a point of order, just to make sure that they've uh what they believe to be the Thunderbird uh in the cryptozoological world may be a pterodactyl. Interesting. You know, I've always thought of the Thunderbird myself, and maybe this is because of what I see on the, the car, but I have always pictured the Thunderbird being like a great eagle, like a huge, bigger than the bald eagle, American bald eagle. I mean, this bird is massive. Um, and that, in my mind, is what I've always visualized a Thunderbird looking like. Um but most Native American tribes who believe in the Thunderbird, they do attribute it to a guardian of the upper world. And the underworld is usually thought to be governed by a great horned serpent. Then there's other cultures who have alternative, alternative, ugh, sorry, words hard, alternatively, Sorry, lost my train of thought trying to get that word out. They have claimed that it is an underworld panther guarding the underworld. The Thunderbird created thunder with its flapping wings and lightning bolts through its fierce stare. The Great Plains tribe, the Okibwe, has a mythic bird living in four directions or, you know, what we call the four points of a compass, meaning north, east, south, west. 
To them, the Thunderbird was a migratory bird and it flew back in the spring with the other birds, ready to battle the underwater serpents that awakened with warning days. It then fell, flew south in the fall when the underwater spirits calmed and prepared to sleep through the winter. Now, it wasn't just the underwater spirits that these great birds dealt with, but they also punished those who broke the tribe's moral rules. So I guess if you think about it, you've got your physical thumb, I'm sorry, your physical compass, and then you have your moral compass. And so it seems like this bird was, you know, kind of. The great hiding. protector of the, of the, uh, of the compass, whether moral or, uh, or factual or mythical. Exactly. Now the Northern Wisconsin Mennonies, that, uh, they're a tribe that claims that the mountain floats in the Western skies where the Thunderbirds trail. These Thunderbirds are messengers of the great sun. In addition to controlling thunder and lightning, they also control the rain and hail. They spend their time fighting the great horned snakes and preventing them from taking over the world and wanting to destroy mankind. The Ho-Chunk around Wisconsin also hold that if you, hold, if you had a vision of Thunderbirds during your fasting ritual changing from a boy to a man, and the man in question will become a war chief for the people. Now, there are two historians of American... Adrian Mayer and British natural Tom Holland. My, uh, it's not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, but as it is a, uh, it is a uh, historian, believed that the uh, Thunderbird stories came from being that due to the ancient tribes coming across uh, the fossils of again uh, pterosauruses. Most uh, historians discount that theory. However, as most tribal images of the uh, Thunderbirds in the petrographs indicate a body shape unlike dinosaurs' uh, fossils, and that the Thunderbird most certainly had feathers appearing similar to a giant eagle. So we're both kind of having the you know thought on that. Wow, now, so I was right. And I was right. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yeah. Now, the Thunderbirds were also depicted as the waterer of Earth, allowing the Earth to bloom and grow after the winter's thaw. The Thunderbird is primarily found in North American cultures. However, historians have discovered Africa, Asia, and Europe has similar imagery and stories as the uh, North American cultures. You know what I always find interesting is when you've got these myths and legends that are so similar in different parts of the world. I mean, these are legends that in the time there was no communication between like America and Africa and Asia and Europe, but these tales evolve that are so similar. Um, another great example is that of the great flood you know, in Christianity, you know, we're taught of Noah's Ark and this and that, but other countries and other religions and other faiths had their story of a great flood. 
And to me, it just fascinates me how similar these stories are that if there's no way for us to share these stories with each other, then there's got to be some proof that there's some truth in those stories. Because how else would we have have them? I mean, do, do I make sense? Am I making sense here or am I just babbling? Uh, you make sense, but you're off topic. I, I, I know that. But, you know, just that whole thing about the the birds, it, it makes sense that because other cultures have these same legends that mm -hmm. there must have been a bird like this at some point. Now, there are a couple of variations on the Thunderbird found in Native history. These include the Rainbird, and this was a vital part of life for not only the tribes, but, you know, also for the Hopi, the Pueblo, the Zumi tribes, who saw the moon sign, moon, monsoon, sorry, thank you, monsoon rains in the summer. And these, they figured, were blessings from the rainbird. They allowed crops to grow and the people to be fed. Then you have the pamola. And this was another bird of weather, specifically around cold weather. This was known specifically to the Abaki, Aben, Abenaki nation. Please excuse my pronunciations. Um, apologize, some of these words are a little difficult. But the Abenaki Nation had the palom, Pamola. And with the Penobscot tribes, sorry, Discord is messing me up. Um, with the Penobscot tribes in Maine, um, they had a myth that they believed the Pamola resented the mortals that tried to visit the mountain home, which is in Katadin. Um, This was the highest mountain in Maine. And the tribe closed access to climbing this mountain because they did not want to upset this, this bird, the Paloma. Um, as this beard, beard, this bird was um not only feared but respected and it heralded the quiet se season of winter this is when the earth slept to prepare itself for the renewing spring now we come down closer to my area and we look at the mesoamericans these include the aztecs which had the leg legend of some people say the quetzalcoatl Others say the Quetzalcoatl, um, and he was a feathered serpent. He held boundaries. Um, I'm sorry, he was held as a boundary maker, and this was the go between between the earth and the sky. There are numerous stories depending on your region. Myths claim that he was born of a virgin whom a god appeared in a dream i'm sorry to i'm sorry he was born of a virgin from a god who appeared in a dream um or it could be that she swallowed an emerald 
Another claims that she was hit in the, the womb by an arrow from a god. Nine months later, she then gave birth. And this is one of the more strange and beautiful ones. It is that he was born of a goddess who gave birth to the stars that formed the Milky Way. Well, it's better than uh, being uh, born in a traveling uh, show and mama used to dance for the money they threw. Papa did everything they could. Okay, okay. Gypsies, tramps, and thieves. Yes. Now, Giesacato is said to have been one of the four sons born to gods and each assigned their own task. His task uh, was the western god of light, justice, mercy, and winds. His brother to the south was the god of war. To the east was the god of gold and farming. In spring, the northern god ruled judgment, night, deceit, sorcery, and of the earth. As such, the, the swing uh, serpent god was often considered the morning star, and his brothers to the east, the morning star. Yezucato was an inventor of books as well as the calendar, and one who brought corn to the world. He also was over arts and tradesmanship, merchants, and was said to have a cross-section of conch shells as a necklace. This piece, called Spryly Vaulted Wind Jewel, and as he was ruler of the winds, some offshoots claimed that him to be the symbol of death and resurrection. While some cultures claiming he was opposite, opposed to human sacrifice, others claimed he accepted it openly. Now, I'd also like uh, another part of the tale of, of what happened to Kezakato was the uh, ancient rulers of the Aztecs grew tired of his of his knowledge and what, uh, according to legend wanted to uh his other brothers conspired with the uh the kings so they bound him and put him in a boat and set him off uh drifting off to the shore as they lost uh as right before they lost sight of him he vowed one day to seek his revenge upon the aztecs 1519, Guadalajara shows up. He's blonde hair, blue eyed. And Montezuma, who was the Aztec ruler at that time, believed that Cortez was the return of Quetzalcoatl in the flesh. But, you know, that could be, you know, what Cortez wanted everybody to believe. Apparently, the only proof this is being that Cortez is, to, you know, told the king of Spain this about how gullible the Aztecs were and his anticipated easy conquest of Mexico. And who wouldn't want to brag about the considering a deity, especially when the uh, king was hardly likely to chop on a ship and check out the history for himself. The same histories who believe Cortez was considered a god and pretty much the same one who believed that Cortez has caused the fall of ancient uh, at the Aztec Empire, though the theory is hotly in contention. 
The Philippines hold the Ibang Adarna. And this is a magical bird that possesses hearing abilities in its song. A story about the bird holds that King Ferdinando was struck with an incurable, incurable disease. So Queen Valeriana allows their three sons to search for the Adarna. When the first returns with the bird to inherit the throne, of course, the way fairy tales and myths go, the other two brothers conspired against the third, who, perceives, who perseveres nonetheless and brings the bird home to his father. The Abong Adana is considered the most colorful bird in the Philippine folklore. Yet the bird has been has not been found to truly exist. Instead, the vivid, vividly colored trogon, which is a native bird, and ranges, sorry, lost my place. Um, it does have a range of beautiful plumage and colors. This has been nicknamed by the locals as the Ibong Adarna. However, the historians do consider this bird to only be fiction. And, you know, there are many stories about how this bird exists. The, the Philippines consists of 7,641 islands of varying sizes. So it would be all too easy to have missed an individual you know, between the few small islands where such a bird could be hiding in place sight. Can you imagine that? 7,641 islands in varying size? I mean, given that, the Philippines must be extremely huge. Mm -hmm. It's not. So the islands must be very small then? They are, uh, the Philippines is maybe, I would say, uh, smaller than Japan. That's interesting. So what is it, like one hut on each island, I guess? Well, it could be the fact that uh, they claimed uh, islands that, uh... no, I digress. <laughs> Let's talk about the Egyptians again. They actually have a de another deity named Venu, whose name was linked to the sun, creation and rebirth. But then again, most Egyptians' gods came and went with many of their attributes overlapping. We speak of the Venu as the being who created itself rather than being brought to life by other gods. Venu was said to have flown over the waters of the watery abyss that existed before creation, who landed on a rock and who uh, called to determine the nature of creation. The sun god Ra came into being and rose over the abyss of Bennu's call, and the world sprang into being. Bennu was known as the Lord of Jubilees, Jubilees, and it is said he would renew himself from time to time. His name is related to the verb to rise in brilliance. And it's thought that 
the Bennu was appropriated by the Greeks, becoming the phoenix of the cult of to their cultures. There is an ancient heron ancestor who is as large as a human that went extinct about 1500 BC, who that was discovered, and the United Arab immigrants in 1977 that once lived in the Arabian Peninsula that historians consider that may have been the inspiration for Banu. So why not jump over to the Phoenix? The first record of the Phoenix by name was the Greek historian Herodotus. And this is around fifth century BC. It was then revised by other historians and throughout the years, such as Lucan, Pliny the Elder, Pope Clement I, Lacatanius, Ovid, and Isidore of Seville. Each retold the mythic Venus as the purpose grew. It eventually became a symbol of renewal and rebirth after struggle. You know, rising from the ashes, as they say. However, the Romans expanded it to include the endurance of their empire. Then the Catholic Church took it over and added the resurrection, the consecration, life in paradise, Christ, the Virgin Mary, and virginity itself. Oh, that's a lot. Um, and the definition of the name was then filtered through English and French languages after going from Egypt to Greece, the Romans and the Vatican. So after all these have, you know, muddled up what the name even breaks down to, some got, so, ugh, sorry, words. Some scholars insist that the Greek could have been likening to a bird such as the griffin, or it, you know, it could be just a palm tree. Others even pulled from Hebrew and aromatic phrases and came up with a purplish red bird. Still, no one really has a definitive answer as to what it really meant. Now, a few short lines thought to be written by an 8th century Greek poet, uh, Hesesode, is the first true writing fragment we have where a phoenix is mentioned by name. It comes from the precepts of Chiron, where a wise senator named Chiron tells a young Achilles about how the phoenix will live a life of 972 times longer than man. A chattering crow lives now generations age men, but a stag's life's poor time a crow, and a raven makes the three stages old, while the phoenix outlives nine ravens. But we, the rich haven nymphs, daughters of Zeus, and the Aegis, older, outlive ten phoenixes. That's a heck of a lot of math involved over these few lines of poetry, but it sounds so lovely that it's only shame that only bits and pieces of the poem even exist today. According to Greek historian Heretus again, he wrote in the fifth, I'm sorry, he wrote during fifth century BC, the Egyptians have a sacred bird. This is called the Phoenix. 
I myself have never seen it except in pictures. Indeed, it is a great rarity, even in Egypt, only coming there once in 500 years when the old phoenix dies. Its size and appearance, if it likes the pictures, are as followed. The plumage is partly red, partly golden, while the general make and size are almost exactly that of an eagle. They tell a story of what this bird does, which it does not seem to be credible. That he comes all the way from Arabia and brings the parent bird, all plastered with myrrh, to the temple of the sun, and there buries the body. In order to bring him, they say, he first forms a ball of myrrh as big as he finds that he can carry. Then he hollows out the ball and puts the parrot inside, after which he covers over the opening with fresh myrrh. And the ball is then the exact weight as first. So he brings it to Egypt, plastered over, as I have said, and deposit it in the temple of the sun, such as the story they tell of the doings of the spurred. Now, my question is, if he's supposed to come every 500 years, and this is in the 5th century BC, so you're saying like 500 BC, does that mean he's only come once before and he's coming a second time? Hey, who knows? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. No. You know, it can't be confirmed clearly enough uh, that the great phoenix is taken directly from the Egyptian Bennu, as the Bennu has quite a lot of stories that often contradict with one another and leave it up to interpretation. Some of the Egyptian stories may actually be influenced by Greek rather than the other way around. So before we go uh, uh, get in, uh, leave the phoenix, perhaps we should expound on the Bennu bird. According to Egyptian mythos, Bennu flew over the surface of chaos at the time of creation. He let out a shrill scream that broke the silence. His call, deciding what would the world and what would not the world contain. Bennu closely resembled a modern-day heron though his feathers were a color of flames and depicted on an artist and myth, sometimes to appear a human head rather than that of a bird. In fact, Bennu eventually came to be the symbol of Ra, the sun god. It was said that Bennu re renewed himself every day upon the sun rays touching him. As such, not only was he associated with Ra, but also Osiris, the god of death and reincarnation. The story of Bennu's birth claimed that he was born out of flames on top of the Persian tree that stood atop the Novlisk. It is the Greek philosopher Herodias who first claimed that Bennu lived for about 500 years before setting itself on fire and being reborn from the ashes. However, often Bennu resumes itself. Herodias insisted the remaining ashes would be placed on the altar dedicated to Ra. Interesting. So it seems like Benu 
is pretty much what we modern day think of the phoenix, you know, rising mm -hmm. from the ashes and stuff. You know, regardless of who inspired who, the phoenix was often portrayed with a halo. This emphasized, it emphasized its connection with the sun. Ezekiel, the dramatist, or the poet of Tragedian, as he held as he was held by several titles, did write somewhere around the second or third centuries BC that the phoenix had an appearance of a rooster. However, the Romans used the likeness of a Numidian crane. This was on coinage during the time that the good emperor Antonius Pius was around, and this was between 138 and 161 AD. Phoenix was considered to be overtly vibrant in plumage, though there never was a clear tale of exactly which colors. Some say that it was similar to a peacock. Herodotus seems the only one that you, Herodotus seems the only one that many used in their own stories in that it was red and yellow. Ezekiel, the tag, the Tragdian, claimed that the red was on its legs and that the eyes were striking yellow. Now, Lancantius, however, Lancantius, however, insisted, Lancantius, however, insisted that the legs were covered in yellow gold scales and that the ta talons were rose colored. Then we have the description of Pliny, Pliny the Elder. And he says that it was the color of a golden pheasant. This was very common in the Far East. And he described the phoenix as, it is as large as an eagle and has a gleam of gold around its neck. And all the rest is purple, but the tail is blue, picked out with rose-colored feathers and the throat picked out with tufts and feathered crests adorning its head. Okay, so, you know, Roman po uh, poet, he didn't know it, but Claudine wrote a poem on the phoenix claiming a mysterious fire flashes from its eye and a flame's aeola enriches its head. Its crest shines with the sun's own light and shatters the darkness with its calm brilliance. Its legs of Tyrrhenian purple, swifter than those of the zephyrs, and its wings of flower-like blue dappered with rich gold. Even size could not be pinned down with, with three of these ancient historians insisting the phoenix was similar in size to an eagle. Two others claimed that it was far larger. Lacanus uh, insisting it was larger than an ostrich. But has anyone ever seen one? That's the ultimate question. Now, ancient historians... Cornelius Valerius claims a phoenix appeared in 36 AD, and Pliny the Elder insists that one was found in Egypt and was brought to Rome and exhibited in the city in 47 AD, coinciding with the 800th anniversary 
of the founding of Rome. He did, however, issue caution as he believed that the bird on exhibit was an imposter. As for how long they regenerated, it depending on which historians you listen to. Romans said his cycle was only once every 500 years, while Egyptians believed they lived for about 1,461 years. Now, given how many stories have been found from the ancient history that were written in alliterative or poetic verse without the author even being known, it is no wonder that one would be found about the phoenix. This 677 line of alliterative, alliterative poetry was discovered in 10th century Old English. This was in the Exeter book, and it basically paraphrased Lacantius' work. Except that it included an allegory that the phoenix was in reference of the resurrection of Christ. Now, it seemed to be that the phoenix was the creature that lived a long life and then emulated as it, its ancient body to create itself a new one from the ashes. However, the bard himself, William Shakespeare, had his own play, I'm sorry, had his own take on this with the play Henry VIII. Just to quote a piece from that play, nor shall this piece sleep with her, but as when the bird of wonder dies, the maiden phoenix, her ashes new create another heir as great in admiration of as herself. So shall she leave her blessings to one. I'm sorry. So shall she leave her blessedness to one. When heaven shall call from this cloud of darkness, whom from the sacred ashes of her honor shall star-like rise as great in fame as she once and so stand fixed. Hmm. Now, in other words, the so-called rebirth was rather the way that the birds bore a single chick at the end of their life, allowing its bone, blood, and feathers to form a new body for another bird to rise as in its place. That isn't exactly saying that the new chick isn't the same chick with a former life wiped clean, therefore starting over, or that it was completely new being with the old having made way for the next to rise up when the former takes its long-deserved rest. Either way, the phoenix is linked to so many cultures. The Hindu have the Gardas and the Baruda. The Russians have Baradbird, Persian Sigmor. The Georgians, Paskut. The Arabians have Agda, the Chinese Fen Hang, and the Zuki uh, These are several versions of the three-legged. Are also several versions of the three-legged crow in Asian cultures that holds the inhabitants and represents the sun. 
as there have been numerous ancient artifacts to these legends to date back as far as 9,000 years old. One of the most popular myths is seeing a sacred crow being an expands uh, in width from wingtip to wingtip, probably eight foot. Herald the divine intervention upon human affairs. It is said in one myth that originally there were 10 such sacred crows. Each were golden in color and they assigned its own sun. Though some stories claim that the crows themselves were the suns. Each day, one crow and his son would climb into the carriage of Zihi. This was the mother to the sons, and Zihi would then carry the pair on their journey across the sky, while others roosted in a mulberry tree that was located in the east at the foot of the Valley of the Sun. As soon as one bird and his son finished their way, the next would board the carriage, and a new day would begin. It seemed that the crows had discovered two grasses of immortality and they loved to ascend from their heavenly perch and fly down to the earth to feast on the grasses. Zihi did not approve of this. So she first covered their eyes to prevent them from seeing the grass, but this didn't stop the birds. And for folklore says that about 4,000 years ago, the birds all descended together while Zihi was distracted and naturally their sons followed. This set the world afire. The celestial, celestial archer Uyi or Shinyi went down to deal with the problem. First, he tried to talk to the crows and they refused to listen. So then he pretended to shoot arrows at them, and they ignored them. He finally had no choice but to shoot them one by one. Each one's light extinguished, leaving a sooty black crow in its place until only one golden crow was left. Now it is his duty to ride daily with Zihi in her carriage and he has no time off for sneaking away to eat the forbidden grass now crows are a sacred and numerous mythos with the numerous native american tribes selling the fate of the red rainbow crow this crow was beloved by everyone for its brightest and beautiful pu uh, plumage and its uh, sultry voice the story goes, however, that one day snow came and the people were freezing, unable to find the warmth. The rainbow crow was so worried about uh, them that he searched for a way to help and was told that he needed to take a stick and fly it to the sun. That way, she could, uh, he or she could ask the sun to light the stick so she could bring back the fire to the suffering people. The sun took pity on her and lit the stick. She carried it back in the beak. 
She knew the longer her journey took that her people would suffer, so she urged her tired wings faster and faster. The smoke from the burning stick flying past her body coated her throat, but she did not falter. The people were so happy to have fire and enjoy the warmth again that they began celebrating, and the crow tried to join in, but was startled by the harsh cough that came from her throat rather than the beautiful song she had possessed. She looked down and found that she herself, her feathers were singed and that the smoke had dulled her colors. In embarrassment, she went to hide herself away, but she was unable to hide from the creator who instantly wiped away the soot and ashes to reveal black feathers that somehow possessed the sheen of her original plume when held up to the sun. Her voice, no longer a cough, but still a loud caw but the people did not mind. Crow had brought them warmth and the dying population, and they had revered and sacred uh, sacrificed for her ever since. So this concludes the first half of our episode of Sacred Birds. Um, Richard, yes. what is what is your favorite sacred bird out of all the ones that we discussed today? Uh... I guess it would probably be, uh, it's a tie between the phoenix and the crow. Interesting. And For me, what, what, what was yours? I would have to say that, you know, being, in being interested and fascinated in the Native American culture and the possibility of having, you know, indigenous blood running through my veins, um, I've always been interested and fascinated in the Thunderbird. Um, like I said, I always visualize it as being a proud, huge eagle watching over the tribes. And mm -hmm. so that would have to be my favorite. Um, do you think that these birds actually existed or do you think that these were just legends and tell tales that were told to either amuse people or teach them a lesson? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, we've already uh, stated the fact that uh, Thoth would, uh, had the head of a, an abyss, so some guy, you know, was like, you know, that kind of reminds me of the dude over there who's t uh, teaching us how to write. He may have had a hooked nose and like, yeah, I'm going to draw him as, as a, a given the head of a, an abyss, you know, because we've had several people being described as having a hawk nose or a bird-like nose, that sort of thing. So who knows? That's a very interesting theory and it, it does make quite sense. Um, and I've always, you know, pictured that these drawings and these glyphs, whether it be, you know, cave paintings or, or whatever, that they are simply the imagination of the people. Um, so like you said, this person looked like, a, you know, it had a bird nose. So they're like, I'm gonna draw them as a bird. That's using their imagination and their creativity. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a fascinating topic and I look forward to um, continuing it next week. Um, but for our listeners, let us know in the comments what your favorite type of bird is um, as far as, you know, sacred birds. And 
you know, we can also continue this discussion in our Facebook group, Skeptic Psychic. Um, we'd love to have you join us. Yes. And uh, next week, we're actually going to learn about my favorite uh, sacred bird. I mean, for this week, we, uh, of course, you know, it had to be a tie between the phoenix and the crow. But you get to find out what I, uh, my favorite sacred bird is going to be. Interesting. I look forward to that. Yes. And for everybody listening or watching, make sure you like and subscribe. Hit the notification to know when Five we go stars. live. Five stars, please. We really like you to tell us how, how good we're doing or how much uh, you're enjoying the show. But we understand that some people just don't want to give us five stars. And that breaks our heart. Yes, if you can leave a review, please do. We will read it on air. And with that, we wish everybody a wonderful night and sweet dreams. And unpleasant nightmares. Good night, everyone. We'll see you next week. Good night.